to Hebrews chapter 10, a familiar passage, but uh, I will tell you that I'm bringing a few messages here at the first of the year that I think are good for us as we begin a new year uh, to remind ourselves of. And uh, the passages that I've preached from, including this one, of course, familiar uh, passages, but I think some that we need to hear again and challenge ourselves uh, with again. Uh, I want to speak to you, and you see in the title of the message, on assembling ourselves, which comes, of course, from verse 25, that we are not to forsake doing that. And uh, I want to lead up to that statement. But uh, since this is such a familiar passage, uh, it will allow me to talk a lot longer in the introduction <laughs> and then uh, come to these points. I want to try to kind of give this a setting uh, that I think is important and one of the reasons why I'm bringing this uh, message today. Uh, Howard alluded to it. Howard prayed about it. And the fact that the world that we live in right now, uh, is it not more atheistic than we have known, uh, of course, and maybe in the history of this country, of course, it is more immoral than we have known to this time. It's more selfish. It's more afraid of what's going to happen. It's more at risk uh, of things happening and, and of terrible things happening. And yet, at the same time that, that those things are true, the church itself has fewer services, less teaching than ever before, easier goals to reach, less commitment, less struggle, but we have more fun than ever before. And so are we a church that is prepared for the 21st century, or even for the year 2019, to be the servants of God in our generation at this time? I want to uh, quote to you some statistics out of a, out of a book that I've been reading, but I want to I set the stage for that a little bit if I can. Uh, I was in a college board meeting this week. You know that I, it's my privilege to be able to still serve on the board at Faith uh, Baptist Bible College and the seminary there. And uh, so we talk about these kinds of things in regards to students and, and where kids are today and where education has to be today. And, and that's an important question. Uh, one of the things that we are looking at is uh, doing more and more online teaching. And in considering that, and, and meaning by online teaching, that means uh, you don't have to actually be there in the classroom. You can be somewhere else and do the class, maybe participate in the class, whatever. And I'm not, this morning, saying, I'm not making a judgment upon that. There's good and there's not so good to that, like there is in, in uh, classroom teaching. But in doing that, one of the things I did as part of this committee is that I uh, actually took three different kinds of classes over the last few months. One I took from Hillsdale College, where it's a recorded type of class, where they have recorded the class. You simply go to that site at your convenience, click on it, and you're like an outside observer. You're watching the room, but you have no interaction. You can't ask questions and so forth. That's probably the least effective type of online learning, uh, you know, because you're, you really have no interaction. 
Then there's a second type that I did in, with our seminary uh, in Iowa where the teacher let me log on live to the class. Now, that's a lot better. Uh, you have to do it at the time the class is being taken, and uh, I could hear the other students. I could see the teacher's computer. They could hear me if I made a comment, uh, but I just wanted to observe. That's a better way of doing it. They call it a synchronized class because you're there at the same time. And then I actually took an eight-week class from the seminary, which is, I think, an even better way to do it, or the, the way that we're doing it there, is where uh, there is a website I go to, I download the lecture when I want to hear it, I get my reading assignment, I post things with other students, you write back and forth, but you don't, you, you don't actually talk with anybody, but you do it at your own time, but there's a lot of interaction. So we're going through all of this, and I'm thinking to myself, how does this apply to the church? And what is happening in the church, too? Since in the schools, uh, we just have to go that way. It's kind of inevitable. As a matter of fact, the accrediting associations, which usually stand over you as a school and say, you better be careful about what you're doing, you know, now look at us and say, why aren't you doing this? <laughs> you know, you ought to be offering all your classes online and so forth. So generally our biblical type of education is behind because we've been more cautious about whether we should do this or not. But what about our churches? Now, I've been reading a book uh, that, uh, that is called uh, uh, Marching Off the Map, and it's a secular book, and it's a book written by educators about where kids are today and when we try to reach out to them or teach them where we are. Now, I'm sure preaching to the choir this morning. <laughs> but let me remind you of who you are uh, by doing this. You know, we, we've, break, we've broken ourselves down into generations lately, right? Some of you are what they called the builder's generation. If you were born between 1929 and 1945, raise your hand. Oh, boy, Lord help us. We have a lot of builders in here. <laughs> But also what we have generally called the great generation. You were, you were born or raised in the Depression era, and yet you fought World War II and saved the world. And so it's a great generation, too. Then there are those of us who are baby boomers, born between 1946 and 1964. Raise your hand. A lot of us are baby boomers. And uh, we are the, one of the largest generations that have come through our country. I mean, there's been more of us because of the baby boom in the 50s and uh, so forth. The baby busters are kind of my kids, those who were born between 1965 and 1982. Raise your hand, you busters, a few of you. Um, uh, there, there is nothing here that makes you unique. Sorry. Uh, no. <laughs> No, maybe, maybe, maybe baby busters because you busted the budget. I don't know, you know. Then, of course, there's the famous millennials. The millennials are those that were born from 1983 to the beginning of the new millennium, to the year 2000. And they have dominated the news and education and everything, and even church outreach, you know, the seeker-sensitive churches and all of that going after the millennials. But now... There have been 19, almost 20 years since the ending of the millennial generation, and we call this generation Z, X, Y, and Z. 
And uh, Generation Z are those kids that are born between 2001 and where we are today. It's Generation Z that this book I'm talking about that I've been reading this week uh, uh, deals with and the statistics they deal with it. And it's and uh, it's good and it's bad. These aren't Christian men, not like a George Barna or somebody, but very much like his kind of books. And to, uh, as a caveat also, they're, they're saying we have to try to, to keep traditional values and some of the good things from the past, but from their perspective, we also have to transition into the new generation and reach them where they are, which I don't always agree with them from that point of view, but again, you're getting a lot of good statistics. By a title that says, Marching Off the Map, what they're saying is, that's like going somewhere where no one's mapped it out. There's no chart. There's no, there's no map to go to, so you're going into new territory. Like Lewis and Clark going west, they made the map as they went, and that's what they're trying to say about what is happening in the 21st century. Of course, for me, as a believer, I'm saying it isn't new at all. This is God's world, and he knows exactly what's going on, and I don't have to be afraid of that. But it is true that we have a whole generation that isn't thinking anything like people have thought before. And there are reasons for that. This is the first generation, they say, that doesn't need adults to get information. They get it a lot of other places. That can broadcast their every thought or emotion in real time. First generation that has external stimuli at their fingertips 24-7. That can be very bad, of course. First generation that are socially connected at all times, but they often... Uh, connect in isolation. First generation that will learn more from portable devices than from a classroom. Again, that's why educators are paying attention. First generation that uses a phone instead of a wristwatch, a camera, a wall calendar, or even a board game. This is the way they live. Here's the, uh, the shifts that we see today, they say. Workouts, are the new work. Movies are the new books, because kids don't read, they watch. Musicians are the new philosophers. Athletes are the new heroes. Starbucks is the new front porch. Texts, as in texting, are the new letter or phone call. Facebook and Instagram, the new social hookup. Netflix is the new blockbuster. Smartphones are the new Rolodex. And Twitter is the new headline for news. Realities that shaped them as kids, one is terrorism. Two is recession. Three, racial unrest. Four, global competition. Social media, complexity and uncertainty, social and ideological pluralism. Terms that summarize them. Instant access to anything they want to do. The new normal, uh, that is, they grew up with all of these things. On demand, they expect entertainment when they want it. Multicultural, they're a mix of ethnic races. 50% increase in the identity of, of uh, multicultural people since the year 2000. Immediate feedback, they insist on responses from social media, games, or friends. Constant contact, they're always connected. Few margins uh, for solitude or silence. Blended families and anything goes, they grew up at a time when traditional morals are all in question. 
I read in the book about one uh, girl who uh, is so afraid that she's not going to be connected to her friends that even when she takes a shower, she puts her smartphone in a plastic bag, zips it closed, and takes it to the shower with her so that she can answer a text if it comes in while she's in the shower. <laughs> Raise your hand if you do that. Okay, nobody in here. I'm, all right, I'm glad I'm preaching to the choir on that one. And many other such things. So what about the church? Now, one of the things that I see in this study of these Generation Z is they do not like to gather together. As a matter of fact, the one thing they will avoid at all costs is gathering together. And yet we have in our text this morning a command from God to gather together. So what do we do about that? Well, we must, since God commands it, and we will, but will it be just our generation? Will, it, will the church as we know it, when we're gone, pass off the scene because kids will not? Maybe uh, you'll we lock, uh, uh, lock into a website somewhere and that will be your church? My uh, old professor used to say, you know, if you, if you look at offerings in the Bible, offerings were never sent, offerings were always brought. That means you have to go somewhere and gather together with other people. So what do we do about this? I got to thinking about this and a term that the Bible uses and that, that we use a lot, and that's the term face-to-face. -face. We even had a social network called Facebook, you remember that, that was once it knew, now it's old, I guess. But, you know, the idea of your face and the idea of having face-to-face -face contact is a deep biblical concept, I want you to know. It begins in the Trinity, it begins with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John 1, in the Gospel of John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Pros is part of the word pros upon, which means face. In other words, the Word was face to face with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with or face to face with God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have dwelt together throughout eternity by being face-to-face -face with one another, that fellowship that the Godhead has with one another is the basis, first of all, for our fellowship and for our face-to-face -face communication. You remember that M Moses wrote it in Numbers uh, 6, The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee. You have to come into the Lord's presence then in order to experience this. But Peter even reminded us and quoted, the Lord spake unto, uh, or excuse me, he, uh, where to, I'm sorry, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, but his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. What is it like to have God's face turned away from you? So the idea of face to face is a biblical concept. Secondly, God made human beings with faces. And believe it or not, the human face is God's original uh, media transport. This is the way we communicate with one another, by our faces. So we are made in God's image, not in an, an the animals are not in God's image. I don't care how much you love your dog or you love your cat. Sit around this afternoon and try to have a conversation with them. You may think you're doing it, but you're not. 
and see if their expression on their face is a human expression. It is not, but your face is. The reason why I'm communicating with you in any way that I am is because you're watching the expressions on my face. This thing that God created, he created my face and he created yours, is full of the five senses. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, all of these things come out of my face so that we have this kind of communication with one another. I have eyes that that look and communicate with you. I have an expression. You have one when you're talking with somebody, a conversation, thinking, and so forth. I like Exodus 33:11, where the Lord spoke unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh with his friend. That's the way you and I speak with one another. That is one of the reasons, folks, why we gather together. Now, if a, if a man and a woman are going to fall in love, a boy and a girl are going to fall in love, they better see each other face to face. I also read in this book about a couple who have been dating for like three years and they have never physically seen one another face to face. But they've been dating for three years. <laughs> I think they better see each other before they say, I do. That's all I've got to say. Parental teaching. Would you go through your life not teaching your children and never seeing them? I, I mean, not teaching them face-to-face? Would you try to raise kids and, and inculcate into them without doing it face-to-face? You really could not. You cannot. Personal witnessing in the Scripture is a one-on-one situation. Where it can be done many ways, and there are other ways to get the gospel out, but there's nothing more effective than standing with someone talking to them. You know if you're an employer or even an employee or whatever, you have people working with you or for you, how effective it is to see them face. Sometimes you just have to see that person face-to-face because the expression on your face and theirs is very important. Preaching the gospel, then, is the same way. It is designed to be done face-to-face, Christian fellowship, confrontation, and things like that. In Second and Third John, John wrote, writes to the elder, uh, to the elect lady, and then to, uh, to uh, a man in the church, and he says, I'm writing unto you, but I would rather come and speak to you face-to-face. Because even John knows that's the best way to do it. And so, when we come to our passage here, about, about congregating together, assembling ourselves together. There is a biblical reason why God established the local church for us to do it. And let me end this introduction with this thought. For 6,000 years, and maybe more, that man has been on this earth, we have done it without remote communication. All communication had to be done face-to-face. It was not until the mid-1800s that Samuel Morris transferred with an electromagnetic impulse across a wire that a man in one city could actually instantly communicate with a man in another city. For 6,000 years, that was impossible and had never been done. Now, (laughs) we think of the Morse code as something that really is ancient, you know, Because now we have this instant communication all the time. Are we better off for it? 
Would our generations show that because now we have instant communication and, and uh, distance communication, that we are more moral, we are more believing in God, we are more trusting, we're more loving toward one another? I don't think so. So where does the church go from here? And that's what I want you to look at with me. Now, as you look at your bulletin, you have an outline. These are familiar points, but I'm really encouraging you and encouraging all of us as a church to especially pay attention to the fact that there's a reason why we gather together. And first of all, and by the way, uh, Howard said, read this chapter. And, and I'm going to amend that and say, read chapters 8, 9, and 10. <laughs> These three chapters together. One is a priest chapter, chapter 8. The other is a blood chapter, chapter 9. The third one is a body chapter, chapter 10. The Lord Jesus Christ came and gave us his body, his blood, and became our high priest. Roman, or I mean uh, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. This is a great passage of Scripture. So when he gets to verse 19, he is starting the second half of the book. And this is the therefore of what we should do because we've learned these things about our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why in the first point I have he drew near in verses 19 to 21. In other words, folks, first of all, the Lord Jesus Christ drew near to you. He came to you. He came to this earth. He didn't, he didn't text you from heaven. Well, in a way, he did with the word of God. But uh, he came first face to face, didn't he? He came to see us. He came to live among us and die among us. But more than that, what these three chapters teach us is that he went back to God and exists with God again face to face. He exists in God's presence at his right hand. And because of that, you and I have salvation. Because of that, you and I have the same hope of going to heaven one day because of what he did. So he drew near to God, first of all, in verse 19, I want to remind you, by his blood. Having, therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, there's a lot to be said in that verse, but I'm saying simply this much. And that is, you uh, come unto God by his blood, and he went to his Father by his blood. Turn back with me to chapter 9, verse 11, and let me read a few verses to you. I want to do this on all of our stops here at the beginning. Chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. That is, he has just said in this chapter, we're talking about a heavenly tabernacle here, where Jesus went after he died with his blood. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into that holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Let me read on a little further. If the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, how much more shall he purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
Now, aren't you glad that he drew near to the throne of God? Aren't you glad that by dying on the cross, giving his blood, his life, he was able to go back to the Father and be accepted into the Father's presence? That is a unique thing. He is our substitute. There's a doctrine called satisfaction which says God the Father was satisfied with what Jesus Christ did for us and accepted him back to heaven, the doctrine of satisfaction. Secondly, in verse 20, though, we find that he did it, of course, out of his own flesh. So verse 20 says, By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh. You know the analogy here. You understand that when he died on the cross, the veil of the temple was rent in half that separated the presence of God from where we were. And now that separation that separates us from the presence of God has been ripped apart because of his, the, the death of his body on that cross. He was our veil. And now we can enter into the presence of God because of him. Go back to chapter 10, verse 5. And here we have this statement. Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared for me. In burnt offering, sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. And said I, lo, I come, in the volume of the book it's written of me, to do thy will. He's quoting the Old Testament, of course. And more that, or above, when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither has pleasure to them which offered by the law. He also said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first that he may establish the second. Let me read verse 10. By the which will, or by that will, we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. How many times have I emphasized when we take the Lord's Supper that this body is the blood holder? That this body that, was, that died on the cross brought that life with it and gave that life for us on the cross. His very blood is his very life. And so by his own blood, by his flesh, he became our high priest, verse 21 of our text having and having a high priest over the house of God. Go back with me to 725. Now he is in God's presence for us, folks. Because of his blood, because of his body, because of that crucifixion and resurrection, he is in the presence of God for us. So 725 says, wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeth, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. I mean, you and I have no hope if he's not at the right hand of the Father, if he's not face to face again with the Father. Such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sin, then for the sins of his people, for this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests, which have infirmity, but the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son, who is consecrated forevermore. Continue on. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest 
who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. In other words, he's become our high priest. Now, that first point that I have in my text here, verses 19 to 21, simply reminds us that the, the Son of God himself went back into the presence of God for us. Because of the body he lived in and the blood that he shed now has become our high priest so that you and I have access to God at all. And that brings us to our second point. So we draw near. And so the author is going to say, let us then. He's going to say it three times. But let us draw near. We have to do this too. Now, somebody might say, ah, but see, in prayer, we draw near by distance, <laughs> virtually. We aren't really there in heaven, but we get to pray as if we were there. It's kind of like a distance ed class. Well, that's true. Praise the Lord for it. <laughs> I said, there's some good things about distance ed and some good things here. But do you not look forward to a face-to-face -face encounter? Would you like to have this distance for all eternity? No. You are looking forward to the time when you see face-to-face. -face. But the fact is here that it's only because Jesus is there that you and I can pray. It's only because he is there that we have access back into the presence of God. We do it, first of all, through his blood, verse 22. So let us draw near, and I want you to notice three things. Since it says, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and also our bodies are washed with pure water. In other words, we have three things. We have a clean heart, we have a clean conscience, and we have a clean body through his blood. As he says here in verse 22, uh, let us draw near then with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Your heart has been washed from its sins. Your, your sins have been forgiven. You come before God in, through the person of Christ having been forgiven of your sins. You have a clean heart. Secondly, you have a clean conscience. You don't have to worry about whether you're saved or not. You don't have to worry about if you died right now, would you make it to heaven? As all other religions in the world have to worry about. What if I die now? Would God, will God accept me? Have I done enough good things? Have I done the right thing in order to get in? You have no conscience about that at all, and praise the Lord for it. A clear conscience. And thirdly, you have a clean body. Your body has been washed so that now you can live in a body that once lived in sin and for sin, uh, for, in the filth of this world, now can live in righteousness before God. You know, some people try to come before God without blood. Can you imagine, even the Son himself could not have gone back into the presence of God without the shedding of his own blood for the remission of sins. And because he died for our sins and not for his own sins, he was resurrected and accepted back into the presence of God. You cannot enter into the presence of God except through the blood of Christ. A bloodless Christianity is no Christianity. To take away the blood 
out of Christianity is to take away the whole of it altogether. I'll show you what happens to those people who say, well, I can come to God another way. I can come through my religion. I can come through myself. Uh, God ought to accept me as I am or whatever it is. Look at verse 29. How much sorer punishment. Suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and, and hath done despite under this spirit of grace. That's how God sees you if you try to come before his presence without the blood of Christ. So, we draw near through his blood. And verse 23, with hope of the future. Now, I want you to see something in verse 23. Let us hold fast the profession of our, and you might have faith, as I do in the older version. That word has to be hope. I even checked the Greek manuscripts that the King James comes from, and it's the word elpidos, or hope. This, I don't know why they put the word faith in here, but it's the word hope. In other words, stay with me here. We have a testimony of hope. That's what he's saying here in verse 23. Let us hold the testimony of the profession of our hope. You say to somebody, when I die, I'm going to heaven. If you died, where would you go? That's a profession of your hope. That's, that's a profession of what you know to be in the future. That's one thing I object to the book type, this type of book that I've been reading, is that they pretend as if we don't know the future. We do know the future. It's a profession of our hope. And secondly, we have God's promise of the future. So he says, for he is faithful that promised. He promised us a future. Now, I don't have time right now, but I have marked here in my notes from chapter 8 and 9 and 10 a number of places where in these three chapters it speaks about what's going to happen in the future. So when you go back and you follow uh, your deacon's advice, what, what uh, Howard said, and you read these three chapters today, you mark how many times in these three chapters the discussion is about the future. And about where you're going when you die. There's a number of them. You know, this last Wednesday, our sister Nellie Liberty died. Barbara's mom died. I'm sorry. The funeral was Wednesday. And being there, uh, and I, I was able to represent us as a church and say a few words and say how grateful we were to be able to minister her in the last years of her life. She was a blessing to us as much as as we were to her, I'm sure. But folks, do we really mean it when we say she's better off than she was before? Do we really believe it when we say uh, it's better to go on to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord than to be absent from the Lord and present with the body? Do we really believe it and mean it? We do. It's a rejoicing thing. I read in a song the other day, Blind Fanny Crosby wrote those words, I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. Someday I'll see him face to face. Isn't that what all of our life is about? We're absent. We want to be face to face. We want to see the Lord as he is. And he will see us and we will see his face. So two things here. He drew near, we draw near, but 
here is maybe the point of the chapter, and that is we draw near together. That's what he's trying to tell us here in this application. So in verse 24, we must do these things. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. So the first thing we do is consider one another. First is in love, and the other is in considering. Now, we, we love one another, do we not? And you know what? We love, we ought to love all brethren or sistern. We ought to love every Christian wherever they are. And those of you who have traveled around uh, uh, to other places, you love the brothers or sisters wherever they are. But the, the bulk, the great bulk of the commands in the New Testament are for you to gather together with the Christians where you are. That's called a local church. And though you may belong to the universal church of all believers, you gather with the local believers because there are certain things that can only be done when you're together. There's no way you can consider those believers on the other side. Well, you pray for them. You maybe read their letters and so forth, but you can't provoke them to love and good works. And we need to be doing that. So we need to consider one another. But verse 25 then says, gathering with one another. Not forsaking. In other words, if you're going to be considering and provoking to love and good works, you can't be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. Let me tell you about that word. The word assembling is a word that is usually translated synagogue, synagogue. Synagogue is a gathering place. A synagogue was where people went to gather together. Soon, S-Y-N, like synthesis, like something being glued together, and ago, that is, I go or I come. I go together or I come together. Sunago is to gather together. Sunagoge is the synagogue where they gathered together. I'll tell you somewhere else where this word was used. When Jesus said it in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are what? Gathered together. I will be in the midst. We gather together because Christ wants to meet with us in a special way in our local gathering together in our I, I can say synagogue just only because that's where we gather together here's another way it was used in acts 14 27 when the missionaries came home and when they were come and had gathered the church together they rehearsed all that god had done with them the missionary comes we say we're having a missionary here tonight or this morning. You gather together because that's how you're going to hear his report. Or here's a greater one, 2 Thessalonians 2.1. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. The rapture of the church itself is the gathering together of Christians in the clouds with the Lord. And so we have a lot of admonitions to this, to assemble there's also the word koinonia, which is fellowship, but that means to have things in common. Koina means common. If you have fellowship, you have things in common. If you don't gather together, you don't have those things in common. There's the word ecclesia, which means to be called out to assemble together. We always have a calling to come and be here at the time the doors are open. So we must do this. 
Now, we must assemble to do this. That's what verse 24 is saying. And we must assemble more, not less. Notice again, verse 25, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So let me ask you this, Faith Baptist Church or any local church, is that day approaching? When you look at the world today and you look at the culture today, wouldn't you say that day is approaching? So you have fewer services? So you have other things that are more important? I don't think so. Do we not any longer need love and encouragement? Do you not need to be provoked by one another by seeing their face and hearing their speak and and, and encouraging them as they encourage you? We don't need that anymore. We need that more than ever in this day and age in which we live. And can we do this face-to-face? We must gather to do it. Well, um, on page 46 of this book I'm writing, The author gives a a little biography, a story of a young man he knows named Dylan who's 15 years old. Dylan is 15 years old. He plays games three to five hours a day. Gaming, they call it. Over 100 hours in a week playing games on his phone or device. He Googles even more than that, more hours than that. He's a screen-ager, they call him, (laughs) a screen-ager. He binge-watches Netflix. He will watch a whole season of movies at one sitting without stopping. When asked what he wants to do for his career, he wants to be a gamer. In other words, he wants to play games for a living. What What a great goal in life. This is the guy, by the way, that has a girlfriend for three years and has never met her face to face. (laughs) And the author of the book knows this young man personally. And he says this, he has not developed the interpersonal skills to dialogue face to face with others. At 15 years old, he has no skills to sit and talk with you. And he's part of a population who's not been conditioned to host conversations in person. It's sad. I only ask you this. Is that a reason then for the church not to congregate together and not to be face-to-face? I would say it's a reason for us to be even more. I would also say to us as an older congregation, you and I do this much better because we come from a generation that does it better. Because when you and I were kids, we had nothing else to do but that. (laughs) So when young people come to us, we on the one hand do have to understand what kind of a broken world they come from and why they may come and sit by themselves and never go to greet you at all, and you say, well, they're sure unfriendly. They are because they can't, but you can. And you can go greet them. And so we must do some things even though they can't do some things. And yet on the other hand, folks, what if this is the Antichrist generation? 
Maybe they call it Generation Z for a prophetic reason. This is the last one. <laughs> then stay faithful to what God has commanded you to do because that's the best thing to do. And that is the best witness we have to the world. We cannot afford to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So let's do that in the year 2019. Stand with me, if you will. Stand, and we will go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll sing and ask him to speak to our hearts about these things. Father, now uh, we've taken time to come to this command that you give us to gather together, and we thank you for it. And Father, we don't know if we are but living in the last generation, and maybe not at all. But, Father, we see the world around us. We know what's happening. And so, Father, we know your word. We know what you've commanded us to do, and we surely don't see any time restriction on those things. So, Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to search our own hearts. Help us to have a love of God for this generation. Of some have compassion, making a difference. Others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. But, Father, give us that compassion that we need, but help us to be faithful and have a greater compassion for you and your word and for your church. So bless us and help us. Bless our kids, our grandkids, and those who have to navigate their way through this. May we be an example, a guiding light for them. Bless us now as we sing. Speak to our hearts in the way that we need. Move us in the way that we should be moved by your Spirit. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. John's going to.